Hello and welcome to On Great Fields, Leaders of the American Civil War. This is episode 36, and today we continue our study of Union General and President Ulysses S. Grant. In this episode, we conclude our discussion of a pivotal moment in Grant's and America's early war experience. The Battle of Fort Donelson. We left off last time with the rebels in a confused state. It was a cold morning in northwestern Tennessee on February the 15th, 1862. The Confederates had just succeeded in blowing a huge hole open in the Union right flank around Fort Donelson. For a moment, they might have escaped from Grant's clutches and on to safety in Nashville just to the southeast. However, with three commanders in charge of the fort, Generals Floyd, Pillow and Buckner, they became confused and indecisive and failed to exploit the breakthrough. Grant had charged over from his meeting with Commodore Foote to take charge and to assess the carnage. After inspecting a few captured rebel knapsacks, he concluded that they were not trying to flank Grant's force. Indeed, they were trying to escape from the fort. Grant also noticed that McClernand's Union regiments were milling about without direction. Their muskets were empty, even though ammo was close at hand. Grant shouted out to the men to, quote, fill your cartridge boxes quick and get in the line. The enemy is trying to escape, and they must not be permitted to do so, end quote. This worked like a charm. Grant knew at this pivotal moment that whoever took the initiative would achieve victory. Now, as a reminder, the lay of the land for Grant's Union Army was as follows. Grant's uh, force formed a wide semicircle around the Fort Donelson and Dover breastworks. McClernand's division was uh, positioned on the far right and had just been routed by a rebel attack in that sector. C.F. Smith's division was on the far left and Lou Lou Wallace's division was in the center between McClernand and Smith. Having just determined the Confederates were trying to escape on his right flank, Grant knew they must be weak on the left, so during the afternoon he began to recoup the positions on the right, which had been lost that morning, and he ordered Smith to make a determined attack from the left. Also, he asked Foote to lob shells into the fort from his stricken ships on the Cumberland, as a diversion and also to provide moral support to his troops. This determination to retake the initiative was a quality that differentiated Grant from other Union commanders. Rather than dwelling on the fact that he had just almost been flanked and nearly defeated, Grant chose to focus his attention on finding and exploiting the weaknesses of his enemy. Meanwhile, C.F. Smith's attack on the rebel right was being executed brilliantly, even with entirely green troops. The following is a depiction of Smith's leadership in this attack by Bruce Catton. He was erect on his horse in front of them, his saber held high in the air, and when he had given the command to advance, he went on in advance of everybody, turning in the saddle now and then to make sure that his men were following him. 
For faint hearts he had scornful words, seeing some of the soldiers hesitating about getting into the thick of things. He swung about and made a wrathful oration. Damn you, gentlemen, I see skulkers. I'll have none of that here. Come on, you volunteers, come on. This is your chance. You volunteered to be killed for love of country, and now you can be. Smith's charge was a complete success, and the right of the rebel line gave way. Meanwhile, McClernand's and Wallace's men were finding it, finding it easy to regain ground they had lost that morning. The rebels' indecisiveness had now cost them any advantage gained by their earlier attacks, and they were now in danger of being overrun by Grant's counterattacking Federals. As night came on, both sides would be forced to spend another miserable night in the cold and rain without shelter. Dead bodies littered the battlefield, and wounded men by the thousands were being treated in every farmhouse and storehouse in the area. Inside the fort, a miserable night was in store for the Confederate commanders as well. The two ranking generals, Floyd and Pillow, were afraid of what might happen to them if captured by the Federals. Their indecisiveness had helped doom the fort to destruction or capture at the hand of Grant's forces. Now they selfishly decided to make a run for it and to abandon their troops altogether. Floyd was naturally worried that his treasonous actions while he had been U.S. Secretary of War would get him hanged if he were captured. For Pillow, it appears he was motivated by simple cowardice. Pillow was known by Grant to be a quarrelous, vain, and simply a very poor commander. In fact, Grant later indicated his pleasure in Pillow's escape, which meant the South would continue to be plagued by his poor leadership elsewhere in the field. Whatever their reasoning, Floyd and Pillow bolted, leaving Buckner and the rest of the Confederate force to their fate. Nathan Bedford Forrest also left the fort with his entire cavalry force of about 700 that same night. Buckner was not about to abandon the fort like his superiors had. He was a true soldier instilled with a deep sense of honor. It therefore fell on Buckner to surrender, which must have been doubly difficult for him given that he would be reviled in the South for surrendering an entire Confederate army for the very first time. So in the early hours of February the 16th, a Confederate emissary delivered Buckner's letter to Smith, who took it to the farmhouse where Grant lay on a mattress on the floor. The letter requested a formal armistice with commissioners appointed to negotiate terms of surrender. When Grant asked Smith for his opinion on the matter, his answer was simple. No terms to those damn rebels. Then Grant sat down at the kitchen table and wrote some of the most well-known and enduring uh, words recorded in American military history. He wrote, quote, Sir, yours of this date proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation is just received. No terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. End quote. Grant asked his old West Point instructor Smith to read it, and he did so and answered dryly, General, I guess this will do. It could not be better. 
As a matter of fact, these words were indeed more than just a threat. Grant had already dispatched his top aide Rollins to the camps of McClernand and Wallace with orders to begin their attacks immediately when they heard the report of Smith's guns opening up. Inside the stricken fort, when Buckner read Grant's harsh terms, he was shocked. Given that Buckner had helped Grant out of a tight spot years ago when Grant was driven out of the army, Buckner assumed that Grant would return the favor and do him a solid. So after reading Grant's terms, Buckner shot back the following response, quote, The distribution of the forces under my command, incident to an unexpected change of commanders, and the overwhelming force under your command compel me to accept the ungenerous and unchivalrous terms you propose, end quote. Buckner can be forgiven for his sour attitude, he, but he was wrong on two counts. One, Grant was not offering terms. He was only offering unconditional surrender. And two, Grant was under no obligation to be generous to the rebels. So when the sun rose on the morning of February 16th, the weather had turned warm. In the Federal line, soldiers looked about, bewildered, asking one another why there was no more firing. Then, from Smith's division, there came a rising volume of excited cheering, and the word sp- spread throughout the camp. The rebels have given up. Lew Wallace advanced his division to occupy the Confederate works in his front, and then his staff spurred on ahead and went on to the town of Dover, where they found Buckner and his staff at breakfast in the village tavern. Half an hour later, Grant joined them. A newspaper correspondent on Grant's headquarters steamer wrote that federal regiments were massing all along the shore and on the heights, each with its flag. He saw a United States flag hoisted on a flagpole and heard a tremendous cheer from the troops and wrote that it was, quote, a glorious moment, a Sabbath morning which will live in history, end quote. Another correspondent was present when Grant and Buckner had a talk. He described Grant, who had suddenly become famous, quote, about 45 years of age, sandy complexion, reddish beard, medium height, pleasant, twinkling eyes, and weighs 170 pounds. He smokes continually, end quote. Later in the day, Grant drew Buckner aside when the conference ended, remarking that Buckner, as a prisoner separated from his own people, might have financial difficulties. If Buckner needed money, anything Grant had in his purse was available. And the favor which Buckner had done for Grant years earlier could be repaid in kind. Grant would prove merciless in battle, but merciful in victory. Grant's first task was to inform his boss, Henry Halleck, of his victory, so without delay, he sent the following telegram to St. Louis. We have taken Fort Donelson and from 12,000 to 15,000 prisoners, including Generals Buckner and Bushrod Johnson. Also, 20,000 stands of arms, 48 pieces of artillery, 17 heavy guns, and from 2,000 to 4,000 horses, and large quantities of commissary stores. It was the first time, the first of three occasions, in which Grant would send such a message to his superiors that he had captured an enemy army. Grant's capture of at least 13,000 prisoners was a record on the North American continent, 
one that he himself would break in just over a year's time. And he was quite gracious to his conquered enemies, offering them food and allowing them to keep their sidearms. He also refused to allow any ceremonies or celebrations that would have shamed the captured rebels as they were marched out of the fort to captivity in the north. As a side note, many of the Fort Donaldson prisoners would be transported by steamer uh, north to prisoner of war camps in Indiana. The largest of these was commanded by Dr. Richard Owen, the subject of episode four of this podcast. The Confederate prisoners uh, held there were treated so well that they would eventually commission a bust in Owen's honor to be placed in the Indiana State Capitol after the war. Now, Grant found himself famous. Until this time, he had been one of many obscure brigadiers doing a job in a remote place. Suddenly, he was the man who knew how to win battles, and his immediate and unconditional surrender note stirred the nation. People who had never heard of Grant before told one another that his initials stood for unconditional surrender. Newspapers reported that Grant had been smoking during the battle, so gifts of cigars came in from all over the country, so many that Grant gave up his pipe and, and became a confirmed cigar smoker. This would uh, he would do for the rest of his life. The North's attention became fixated on Grant's triumph, which overcame a defeatist attitude that was beginning to take hold. Back in Illinois, Governor Yates described the excitement that took hold throughout the state, saying that, quote, Thousands gathered on the roads and at the stations with shouting and with flags. Chicago reeled madly with joy. Such events happen but once in a lifetime, end quote. From St. Louis, his new friend, Colonel James B. McPherson, described Halleck's reaction with the following, quote, General Halleck is exceedingly gratified and sta- says that you could not have done better. Immediately on the receipt of the news, he telegraphed to the president to nominate you for major general, end quote. He also made mention of the topic of Grant's drinking allegations and said these had been forgotten. This topic indeed would not be forgotten, at least for the time being, However, William T. Sherman saw in this battle proof that Grant had mended his ways from his pre-war army days. He wrote his brother that, quote, Grant's victory was most extraordinary and brilliant. He was a plain, unostentatious man, and a few years ago was, a ba- was of bad habits, but he certainly has done a brilliant act, end quote. President Lincoln immediately signed Grant's nomination as Major Major General as soon as he received it. He also commented on the spirit of Grant's army. Quote, If the Southerners think the man that man for man they are better than our Illinois men, or Western men generally, they will discover themselves in a grievous mistake. End quote. This would mark the beginning of a special relationship between Lincoln and Grant although they would not meet each other face-to-face for another two years. Meanwhile, the capture of Fort Donelson also demonstrated a shift in Grant's treatment of fugitive enslaved people. There were thousands of enslaved men among the Confederates captured, 
These men had been moved into camp to build fortifications for the Confederates and to serve as laborers. Grant refused when their former owners of these men showed up to collect their so-called property. Grant said, We want laborers. Let them work for us. This would be a step in a process that would eventually end with, forever, with former slave, enslaved men being recruited as full-fledged Union soldiers. This Union victory destroyed the Confederate defensive line Albert Sidney Johnston had created in Kentucky and Tennessee. Grant had outflanked the Confederate positions in Bowling Green and the mighty fortress of Columbus, the so-called Gibraltar of the West, so Kentucky had to be abandoned by the Confederates. Also, western and central Tennessee were now wide open to the Federals, and Grant would move to exploit this straight away. Grant was given command of the new district of West Tennessee, and he was ready to move immediately southward to exploit Union Army gains of territory. He traveled up the Cumberland to Clarksville, Tennessee, and found the occupants had deserted the town, with the exception of, of the black residents. They were thrilled to witness the Union takeover Tennessee, of the Tennessee and cheered as men disembarked from their steamers. Grant uh, heard rumors that Nashville, the state capital, uh, just upstream on the Cumberland, was being abandoned, and he was keen to get there as soon as possible. However, this is where he came into further contact with, or conflict with his boss, Henry Halleck. Halleck was busy trying to take credit for the Union victories in Tennessee, writing strongly worded letters to Washington demanding a promotion and control of the entire Western theater. While doing this, however, he was also expressing grave fears and uncertainty about what should be done next. He did everything he could to hold back Grant, who was busy making plans to conquer all the territory in Tennessee, which was being abandoned by the Confederates. Now, Grant knew Halleck was deathly afraid of risk and that he might be in trouble with Halleck if he pushed his men further than Clarksville. So when uh, William Bull Nelson arrived with reinforcements from Buell's Department of Missouri, Grant immediately sent him to Nashville to take the town. It was about this time that communications between Halleck and Grant came to be affected by problems with the telegraph system. Grant's daily reports were not making their way to Halleck, and Halleck's orders to Grant were not arriving on a timely basis either. Years later, Grant would learn that the telegraph operator in Cairo was a rebel spy who was sabotaging, sabotaging the system and failing to deliver and relay telegrams coming and going into Grant's headquarters. He had no way of knowing this or even of addressing it at the time because the entire system was managed by civilian contractors answerable only to Washington. This would have huge implications for Grant because, due to Halleck's paranoia, he chose to assume Grant was derelict in his administrative duties since taking Fort Donelson. And due to the, his jealousy of Grant's new fame, Halleck was happy to assume the worst, already doing what he could to undercut Grant's authority. With this goal in mind, Halleck sent the following telegram to General-in-Chief McClellan on March 4th. 
I have had no communication with General Grant for more than a week. He left his command without my authority and went to Nashville. His army seems to be as much demoralized by the victory at Fort Donelson as was uh, that of the Potomac by the defeat uh, of Bull Run. It is hard to censure a successful general immediately after a victory, but I think he richly deserves it. I can get no returns, no reports, no information of any kind from him. Satisfied with his victory, he sits down and enjoys it without regard for the future. I am worn out and tired with this neglect and inefficiency. Well, this was untrue and really an unforgivable act on Halleck's part. Of all the commanders in the West, Grant was the one most focused and energetic, taking every step possible to press his advantage in the face of a reeling enemy. Yet Halleck wasn't yet finished slandering his best lieutenant. On March 5th, he wrote the following letter to McClellan again. A rumor has just reached me that since taking the taking of Fort Donelson, General Grant has resumed his former bad habits. If so, it will account for his neglect of my often repeated orders. I do not deem it advisable to arrest him at present, but have placed General Smith in command of the expedition up to Tennessee. I, I think Smith will restore order and discipline. McClellan's response included the following. The future success of our cause demands that proceedings such as grants should be at once checked. Generals must observe discipline as well as private soldiers. Do not hesitate to arrest him at once if the good of the service requires it and place C.F. Smith in command. Of course, none of this was true, and and most of the people, including Halleck, knew it. Nevertheless, that same day, Halleck sent the following telegram to Grant, which was ironically allowed by the saboteur to be delivered. You will place Major General C.F. Smith in command of your expedition and remain yourself at Fort Henry. Why do you not obey my orders to report strength and positions of your command? Incidentally, this, com- this telegram arrived just 16 days after the unconditional surrender of Fort Donelson. With this remarkably tone-deaf and bizarre correspondence, Halleck, in effect, slowed the war in the West to a crawl. Grant replied to Halleck that he had indeed been providing daily updates and troop strength numbers, etc., but Halleck wasn't interested. Grant was a rival to Halleck, and for now, he was under a sort of house arrest. Thankfully for Grant, things would get better for him soon enough. This is because President Lincoln intervened on Grant's behalf after he had complained of his treatment uh, to Washington. Grant was Lincoln's favorite new general, so when he learned about these strange intrigues, he told Halleck to either file charges against Grant for something or otherwise drop the matter entirely. Halleck decided to drop it because he knew that there had been no basis for his accusations. Halleck finally sent word to Washington that Grant had, after all, behaved properly, that, quote, he acted in a praiseworthy, although mistaken, zeal for the public surface, end quote, when he made that trip to Nashville. 
and that the whole unpleasantness had been a regrettable misunderstanding which might as well be forgotten. Indeed, it was forgotten by all except Grant. This would prove to be the most difficult and bitter period of Grant's career. It would prove even more bitter after, or when, after the war, Grant found out the extent of Halleck's intrigues against him. But we'll cover this more in later episodes. Meanwhile, just before Halleck finally ended his hit job, there was a nice little ceremony on the steamboat Tigris anchored at Fort Henry, which was Grant's headquarters boat. Grant was called on to receive a presentation sword. A speech was made by a colonel of the 20th Illinois who remarked that the sword had been ordered a long time ago, but that fortunately its delivery had been delayed. Quote, Fortunately, we say, because at this moment when the jealousy caused by your brilliant success has raised up hidden enemies who are endeavoring to strike you in the dark, it affords us an opportunity to express our renewed confidence in your ability as a commander, end quote. According to Catton, the sword was very handsome, ivory handled, and mounted in gold, as a news- newspaper correspondent saw it. And when he accepted it, Grant choked up and was unable to stammer out a speech of thanks. He hurried out on the deck, and Dr. Brenton found him there with tears in his eyes. After a while, Grant took the doctor by the arm and led him back into the cabin, where the sword in its open case lay on the table. Pushing the case toward him, Grant said, quote, Doctor, send it to my wife. I never want to wear a sword again. Quote. We'll close this episode for now. There's a place called Pittsburgh Landing with a quaint little Shiloh church awaiting for us next time. As a postscript, you may be wondering what became of the two cowardly Confederate generals, Floyd and Pillow, after they uh, fled Fort Donelson. The former Secretary of War, John Floyd, made it to Nashville and to safety, but he was then summarily removed from command by President Jefferson Davis. Gideon Pillow would go on to command a brigade of Tennessee soldiers in the Stones River battle. However, Pillow's commander would be infuriated to find him hiding behind a tree instead of leading his men into battle. He would never again command troops in the field. 